Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. You may uh, be seated. This is a, an amazing text. It's concluding Paul's argument that started in chapter 3. And in chapter 3, he alludes to the idea that there's an inheritance coming for God's people. And that this inheritance is the blessing of righteousness. It's the promise of the Holy Spirit. It's the blessedness of no longer being under the control of a tutor, under a guardian, under the prison house of sin. <clears throat> and so he's, he's bringing all these illustrations to a final head. And the final head is verse 4, Galatians 4.4, 4, when the fullness of time had arrived, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who are under the law. This little preposition under has been used throughout this argument in chapter 3. It talks about being under the tutor. And then in chapter 4, he says, we are under guardians, and that we are under stewards. And then he uses the preposition again that Christ came to redeem those who are under the law. So all of salvation's history is culminating at the cross. From Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman will bruise the serpent's head to the time of the coming of Christ. This time has been completed. It's been fulfilled. You and I are living in the best age of God's people throughout time and history. For 4,000 years, they were looking forward to a promised seed of the woman, the promised seed of Abraham, and that seed is Jesus. 
He has arrived, and we are living in the best age. I like to look at the Old Testament as a progressive unraveling of God's preparation for the world to embrace the Messiah. When I was a child, I wasn't very artistic, and I'm still not very artistic. And about the only way I could paint was paint by number. (laughs) And I remember looking at those things on that wooden board and all those dots, and it just looked like a random set of dots. And I kind of think that sometimes in the Old Testament, this idea of a Messiah coming and what that age would look like was a bunch of dots just speckled all over a piece of plywood. But as you begin to connect the dots, you start to see what this is going to be. You can't quite figure it out yet, but you can see, okay, this thing's got feathers. Um, What else has it got? There's some, some trees behind it. And then as you continue to connect all those dots, you stand back and you see what this is supposed to look like. And you and I are now at the vantage point where all the dots have been connected. We know who the seed of the woman is. We know who that lamb represents when the blood was put over the doorpost. We know who the manna is that came down from heaven. We know that rock that was struck was Jesus, and so forth. So we are living in the best age ever. We can take those little segments of God's revelation, and we can see deeply how much God has planned salvation for you and I, and we can analyze every little facet of it, And understand that Jesus is the bread of life that gives life for the world. We can understand when Jesus says, whoever is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. For out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. We understand what it means when Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... Even so, the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever looks in faith and believes will live. We understand all these things, and we can analyze salvation from different vantage points and understand the richness and the deepness of God's plan for humanity like no other generation can. Jesus said this to his disciples, Blessed are your eyes, for they see. Blessed are your ears, for they hear. For verily I say to you that many prophets and righteous men have desired to see the things that you see and have not seen them, and to hear the things that you hear and have not heard them. That generation got to walk with the incarnate, living Word of God. And you and I even have a greater salvation than they had because we have the implantation of the Holy Spirit that now illuminates our eyes when we read the Scripture. 
and when we edify one another, and we now have the advantage of the body of Christ, where spiritual giftedness now complements one another, no other age in God's history of salvation is so blessed than what we are. And so many times we grumble and we complain about the political situation around us, the economics around us, and yet in reality we are living in the best age ever and we can use it to our advantage and God has said this inheritance, full maturity, full sonship is now yours to live out. And so my message this morning is God's time of maturity has arrived. Let's no longer walk and live as infants. Let's walk as complete, full, mature children of God. And that's what Paul was saying to these Galatian believers. They were wanting to go back to what he calls basic elements to which you desire to be in bondage again. You're negating all that God has done and you're using the law in a way that the law was never intended for. What was the law intended for? The law was intended to show you and I what great sinners we are. Was the law against the promises of God, Meganoitoi? May it never be. The law was given so that transgressions would abound. It was to make a favorable situation for sin to show its ugly head. Every time you and I lie, we are liars. We're learning this in Sunday school. Every time we covet something, we are thieves. Every time a bad word comes to my mind, may not have to speak it, I'm a blasphemer. The law points out our need for Christ. Therefore, by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. So the law had no intention of ever bringing righteousness. The law had no intention of delivering from the bondage of sin. The law had no intention of writing God's word in our heart. The law reveals our deep and desperate need to repent to turn to God in faith. That's what the law was for. And now these Galatian believers are wanting to go back to the law, and he says, now I say to you, as long as the heir is a simple little child, he differs nothing from a slave, even though the inheritance is all his. And here's the warning this morning. God wants you and I to live as complete, mature Christians. But when we are not, we are depriving ourselves from the inheritance that is actually ours. We're living as if we are paupers, spiritually, when Christ has enriched us. We are living as if we are powerless to defeat sin, when in reality, Christ has empowered us to live victoriously over sin. And so he's warning these Galatians not to do this. About this time that we're living in, Peter makes reference to this. In 1 Peter 1.10, he says, Of which salvation, which you and I now are enjoying, he says, The prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that was to come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them signified, when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should be revealed 
unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported to you through the gospel by the Holy Spirit sent down from heaven. In this section, Paul gives us the last illustration for us to understand what God intended salvation to do. Salvation history has been completed. We are mature sons and daughters ready to receive our full inheritance, all of it. Now, we know what happens when we give our children freedom before they should be entrusted with it. It usually goes awry, doesn't it? Not usually, it always does. And the story of the prodigal is a picture of a father who's asked to give his son the inheritance prematurely. And what does he do? He goes out and he squanders the inheritance with riotous living. The father knows best. Remember that, kids. (laughs) He knows when it is the right time to give that child the inheritance that's all due him It all belongs to him, but until that time, he doesn't differ at all from the slave that's watching over him. And that's Paul's argument here. He's using a Roman law. A Roman father could appoint a day when his son was going to get that inheritance, and that inheritance could have been anywhere from 14 to 25 years of age. But the father knew that child. He knew what they looked like. He knew what they acted like. He knew their temperament. I will give that inheritance when they are ready for it. And Paul is warning us here, immature Christians, they have all the privileges, but they cannot be trusted with them. So let us not be immature believers. The temporal maturity, and we can see this this idea of of this temporalness of the law. So if you're in your Bible in Galatians chapter 3, go to verse 19. And I want to just point out some of these temporal clauses. What purpose was the law served? It was added because of transgression. And here's the temporal clause. Till the seed should come. The law was only to be temporary until the seed should come. That was the purpose of the law. Now let's go over to verse 23. But before the law came, we were kept under the law, kept for the faith, which afterward would be revealed. So again, the temporal idea, before faith, after faith is revealed. Let's go to verse 24. Therefore, the law was our tutor. And the preposition here literally should be translated, the law was our tutor until Christ. And look at verse 25 again. But faith, we are no longer under the tutor. So Paul is picking up this argument in chapter 4 and says, as long as you're an heir, when you're a child, you don't differ from a slave. Though you're master of everything, the inheritance is all yours, but is under guardians and tutors. And here's the temporal clause, until the appointed time of the father. Now Paul uses... A clause here in chapter 2 that says, 
even so we. But let's define who the guardians and the stewards are. The guardian was a slave that had control over that child's behavior. He made sure that his manners were correctly. He made sure that he learned all of the virtues of manhood. But he was a child. He needed someone to guide him in all those things. He made sure that he prioritized his time properly. Now, I want you to understand this because this is the idea that Paul wants to, to get across for maturity. As a mature believer, we should be developing Christian virtues in our heart without a guardian. We should be developing spiritual priorities without the guardian. We should have a desire and a hunger for righteousness without the guardian. The immature ones needed the guardian. And they also needed the steward. Because the steward took the inheritance and says, I'm going to teach you how to invest this. Because you don't have a clue of what to do with all this wealth. You're going to go out and splurge. You're going to go out and buy whatever you want. I remember when I was a little boy, um, a good friend of my father's gave a war bond when I was born. And my dad told me I could wait till I was 25 to cash in that war bond. And I mean, it was going to be worth a lot. Or he says, Patrick, you can cash it in when you're 10 and get $25. Well, Patrick had his eye on this Schwinn slick bicycle that had a yellow banana seat. <laughs> and old Patrick didn't have enough sense to wait until he was 25, so I got that little slick bicycle. I didn't have the sense. I should have been under a steward and said, no, 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 use that. Because when I was 25, I was driving around on a bicycle still. <laughs> and that's what Paul is getting at. You're a minor child. You don't know how to use it. And this immature stage is so far inferior to what God really wants us to be as believers. So he says, Paul says, even so we. He's talking about Jewish people here when he says, even so we. He's not talking about Gentiles. If you look at chapter 4 and verse 9, there he's talking about Gentiles. So let's just read chapter nine or chapter four, verse nine, really quickly. It says, "But now, after you had known God, Gentiles, or rather, are known by God, you Gentiles, how is it again that you turn to what weak and beggarly elements?" So he calls the Jewish religious system elements of the world, but the Greek and Gentile religious system. He calls it weak and beggarly. The Greek word is stoichia for elements. We're going to go to the book of Hebrews. And I'm going to show you how that word is used. But basically, I hate that word basically. I don't know. That's a, that's a word that this generation, and I've got caught up using it right now, because it is the basics. 
It is the basics. Stoichia are the A, B, C's of the alphabet. They are the building blocks. They are the whole numbers or the integers. And from those integers, you learn how to do math, adding and subtraction. But the better you know your integers, you can go on into algebra, trigonometry, and calculus. But you don't want to stay in the integer stage. You don't want to stay in the stage that says, see, dick, run. You want to read Shakespeare, right? And Paul is saying, as long as you go back under the law, you are just doing the ABCs of the world. Now, why does he call Jewish religion basic elements of the world? So put your place here, your marker or your finger, whatever you got, and I want you to turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 9 and 10, and we'll see why these are called basic elements of the world. So let's quickly flip over there, Hebrews chapter 9, and we'll read verses 1 through 4, and then we'll read 8 and 9 of chapter 9. So Hebrews chapter 9, it says, Then indeed, even the first covenant, so he's talking about the basic elements of the world, it had ordinances of divine service and an earthly sanctuary. That's why Paul calls them the elements of the world, because it was an earthly sanctuary. It was a worldly tabernacle. I hope you can see where Paul is going with this. As true believers, we don't assemble in earthly, worldly tabernacles. Like Caleb said this morning, this is where I want to be. This is the gathering. This is the people that I want to be with. Whether it's sitting around a fire pit, or whether it's sitting in pews, or whether it's coming to my house tomorrow or uh, next Sunday night, this is the tabernacle of God. It's not an earthly sanctuary. It's God's living temple where we are living stones and the Holy Spirit indwells you and I. And he says those were just rudimentary things. They were a worldly sanctuary. They were earthly. They were a physical tent that you could move it around. He says it had a lampstand. It had a table. It had showbread and all these things. But I want you to go over to verse 8. The Holy Spirit was indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet manifest while that earthly stoichia was in place. But now you and I, symbolically, what that stood for in the past, verse 9, where both sacrifices were offered, and this is why it's simply ABCs. It cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regarding to his conscience. Don't go back to the immaturity where somebody has to guard you and protect you and steward you and tutor you because it has no power to change and transform your conscience. Chapter 10. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, not the very image of those things, can never with these sacrifices which they offer continually year by year Make those who approach perfect. The law can never make you complete. The law can never give you righteousness. The law can never give you victory over sin. Jesus Christ has come. The fullness of time has arrived. 
And you and I are now made perfect by the sacrifice of Christ. Because if those things could have done it, Paul, I think Paul wrote this, he says the worshipers once purified would have no more conscience of sin. So this is why Paul calls these things the ABCs of the world. Now, what's the transition for you and I? These things, the law, the Jewish system, they were earthly, they were physical, they were limited in what they could do, and they were simply temporary. And verse 4 is the key to understanding this passage. It's sort of the hinge verse. This is what you were under. Now when the fullness of time came, Christ, Christ puts himself under all the same things that you and I were under. This is the beauty of salvation. We were under tutors, weren't we? We were kept in a prison guard. We were enclosed in a net, like a, like, like a shoal of fish trapped in sin. We had to have a guardian teaching us virtues and Christian morals and ethics. We were under a steward who said, you can't have your inheritance yet. And so Christ came at the fullness of time, and he put himself under all of that. What a beautiful picture of salvation. The fullness of time. I think Paul had some other ideas here that that's alluded to in Daniel chapter 2 we've got four successive kingdoms preparing for the Messiah the Messiah comes under the fourth kingdom a hand that's invisible carves out of the mountain in this stone and it comes and it crushes that fourth kingdom that is Jesus Christ he is that rock when Jesus Christ came at the fullness of time, Caesar Augustus made a decree that the entire Roman world should go back and fulfill a census. Jesus Christ was born then to fulfill a prophecy in Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. But thou Bethlehem, Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth to me a ruler in Israel whose goings forth are from everlasting. Jesus Christ was crucified at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Between the sunset, literally, is what the Hebrew says. That's when the Passover lambs were being shed. The fullness of time, even down to the very tick of the clock, when Jesus Christ was crucified. The Roman Empire had 40% of the world's entire population. If you're going to make an impact... God said, I am going to wait until the fullness of time. Paul went to the emperor and appealed to Caesar and proclaimed to Caesar's household, Jesus Christ is Lord. He got to testify before King Agrippa. He got to testify before Felix and Festus and on and on because God in his providence said the fullness of time has arrived. The kingdom before the Roman Empire was Alexander's empire. And Alexander Hellenized the entire world under his dominion. And what did he do? He spread the Greek language. 
Paul could sit down and write from his prison cell a Greek letter and send it anywhere in the Roman Empire, and everyone could read it. The fullness of time had come. Pax Ramona, there was peace. You could walk from Israel literally to Rome on the Roman road system, and there was Roman peace everywhere. The fullness of time, God's divine providence setting all these things in motion. The diaspora of the Jews under the Assyrian Empire and under the Babylonian Empire. You know what that meant? In this Roman Empire, where 40% of the world's population all settled, where they all spoke the Greek language, there was a synagogue in every major city of Rome, a testimony to the one true God in heaven, where God-fearers were fleeing the paganism around them, and seeking an answer in Judaism, and Paul would walk into those synagogues Sabbath day after Sabbath day after Sabbath day. And Gentiles by the thousands were coming to Christ, and God was turning the world upside down for Jesus Christ. That's the time that you and I are living in right now. The fullness of time had come. So what did God do in this fullness of time? He sent His Son. The divinely ordained epoch of time now had been completed. Paul uses the same idea in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, Our fathers all passed under the cloud. All of our fathers were baptized in the sea. All of them were baptized into Moses. All of them ate that same spiritual food. All of them drank the same spiritual drink. They all came to that rock, and that rock that followed them was Christ. And then Paul says, all those things were our example. All those things in the Old Testament, they were the dots to dot to dot to dot. They were written for our admonition on whom the end of the world has come. The word for world is eons. The end of all ages. The New King James and other modern translations translate that. All the epics, all the times had come on this generation. Everything that God had been doing has been fulfilled when he sent his son born under a woman. Everything that you and I face in humanity, Jesus Christ faced it. Every temptation that you and I have to square up to, Jesus Christ endured it. And he is a faithful high priest now when we run to him for refuge. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15. Jesus Christ as a man learned obedience by the things that he suffered. Chapter 5 and verse 8. Jesus as a man put under the law, fulfilled all of the law's demands. As a woman, born of a woman, he felt everything that you and I feel and everything that you and I need. Verse 5 says, he did this to redeem those who were under the law. You and I under. What was the law like? Pedagogue. It had to tutor us. It was like our governor. It had to make sure that our virtues, our time priorities were all squared away. It was like our steward. 
that says you can't have your inheritance. Well, Christ came and he submitted himself to the law completely and fulfilled it perfectly. He was a woman, born of a woman, so he understood our, uh, our weaknesses and our frailties completely. So as a result, the pedagogue who took the child to school made him learn his Greek lessons, made him practice virtues, quizzed him after school. That need for the law has ceased. You no longer need someone to take you by the hand and make sure you've done your Bible study. You have the Holy Spirit to guide and lead you. You're no longer under a governor who helps you prioritize your time. No, you have the Holy Spirit to guide and convict you, to use your time in a way that God would be honored with, redeeming the time, making the most of every opportunity we're exhorted, a steward who would manage your inheritance. All these things were just a shadow. And now the body is Christ himself. Paul in the letter to the Colossians puts it like this. All these things were just a, a shadow compared to what we have now in Christ. Let one, no one judge you in meat or drink or in respect of a holiday or new moons or Sabbath days. They are simply a shadow. But the body is of Christ born under the law. Jesus identifies with humanity in order to redeem humanity. In Hebrews chapter 10, when Paul was talking about those temporary, earthly stoichias, those basic elements that really couldn't ever deliver, they couldn't give our conscience right, they couldn't deliver from guilt, they couldn't deliver from the power of sin, he quotes from, uh, from Psalm chapter 6. He says it's impossible to take, away the blood, to take away sin with the blood of bulls and goats. It, it can't do it. Therefore, when Jesus came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. Burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure in. Those things were just temporary. Then I said, Jesus, behold, I have come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying sacrifices and offering for burnt sacrifices and sin you did not desire, I had no pleasure in those things which were offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first so that he may establish the second. As a man, Christ was subjected to every single temptation that you and I are going to face. And so we can claim the promise in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, there has no temptation taken you but such as common to man. But God is faithful not to allow you to be suffered, to be tempted above what you are able, but will with the temptation make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. As a man, he became obedient and suffered everything that was intended for you and I. Jesus Christ became the curse that under the law you and I should have incurred, right? 
Cursed is everyone who does not continue in everything written in the book of the law to do them, but that no one is justified before God evident for the just shall live by faith and the law is not of faith but the man who does them shall live by them and Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law being a curse for us for it is written cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree Jesus Christ became poor so that you and I might be spiritually enriched 2 Corinthians 8 9 And what makes all of this real for you and I? What actualizes our salvation? We are looked at now. The time is appointed by the Father. He says, I can trust you with his inheritance. You are full, legitimate sons. You don't need the steward. You don't need the tutor. You don't need the governors. And to ensure that all of this is going to be fulfilled, he sends forth the Spirit. And where does he send him? He sends him into our hearts. And what is that spirit doing? It is crying out, Abba, Father. The intimacy now is for you and I. He comes into the heart. He's crying, Abba, Father. We have the power so that we are no longer enclosed in that net of sin. We are no longer in a prison house. We are no longer under a tutor who makes sure that we do our spiritual homework. We're no longer a governor that teaches us Christian virtue. We are no longer under a steward that says, you can't have your inheritance. It is all ours now. The law is written in our hearts. You and I have the mind of Christ. You and I can put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provisions for our flesh. You and I can say that our old man has been crucified so that I can walk in the newness of life. You and I ought to be mature believers. John Wesley, in his testimony, he writes about his testimony, and John Wesley was a very, very rigid, rigorous spiritual man. But he lacked joy and he lacked victory. And he got on a voyage to come to America as a missionary. And on that voyage, he was around a group of brethren Christians who had this simple Christianity. It wasn't this rigidness. It wasn't these rules. It wasn't regulations. And when this ship got in the midst of this storm, it was about to sink. These brethren believers were rejoicing and singing, and John Wesley was terrified. And he went and he began to ask them. He says, I keep all these commandments. I do all these things. I do everything right. And they said, kind of like what they they told the rich young ruler, you lack one thing. You don't have Christ in your heart. And later John Wesley wrote about that voyage, and this is what he said. My conversion is as if I had been a person of faith, but I was merely a slave. And now I am a son. The fullness of time has arrived. By this time, we no longer need the basic elements to guide us. Let us go on to maturity, not laying again the basic principles of repentance from dead work, of baptisms, of laying on of hands. And what's the other part? I can't remember. (laughs) 
It's chapter 13 in Hebrews, or um, chapter 6, verse 1. Let me just flip over there real quick. Because this is what Paul is wanting us to do in eternal judgments. And this we will do if God permits. This is what God wants us to do. He wants us as mature believers to take our inheritance, which is the Holy Spirit, and apply it to our lives to have victory over sin, to develop Christian virtues, godly disciplines and habits that prioritize our time, our money, our resources, and take our inheritance, which is complete righteousness, and enjoy the intimacy that you and I can have in a personal relationship with God, crying out, Abba, Father. This is the age that we live in. Father, thank you so much that, God, that in your infinite wisdom, your sovereignty, that you chose when Jesus would come to make the greatest impact on this earth, and God, so many times we act as immature believers. We need reminders constantly. We need urges and we need promptings to do the right thing. And I pray, God, today that we will rely on the power of the Holy Spirit, that gift that has been given to you and I, that cries out within us, that longs for that relationship that bears witness with my spirit that I am a child of God, that I will listen to those promptings instead of the law, instead of pastor's sermon, instead of something on Facebook, that God, that I would just take the initiative and say, yes, Holy Spirit, I want to spend time with you. I want to develop godly habits. I want to live a disciplined life, not because I have to, but because I have a love relationship with my Father in heaven. God, bless your word to our hearts today and do the work that you want to accomplish. We pray in Jesus' name.